Uh, I'm also very happy uh, to be back in the book of Luke. So um, we had a great sermon series on discipleship, and I think it was very enjoyable. Hopefully it was very, very beneficial um, to you all. But I am very happy to be back in the book of Luke, continuing our study, um, our like three-year-long study now, I think is something like that, through the book of Luke. So uh, we are doing our very best to get everything we can out of this book. Uh, and I think it's been encouraging so far. I know it has been for me. And I'm excited to be back in the book of Luke. I am okay with topical sermon series, but if you know me very well, you probably know and have heard me say before, I really love um, just preaching through a book of the Bible, taking a book of the Bible, verse by verse, section by section, and just breaking it down and studying that. And I think there's a lot of benefit that comes from that. I think uh, as a church, as pastors, as preachers of God's word, it uh, calls us to faithfulness because as human beings, we are prone to uh, preach on the things that we want to preach on and the passages we like to preach on. Uh, but by preaching verse by verse through Scripture, it kind of forces you to preach on whatever Scripture is presented to you that week. And I think uh, it is a good exercise in, in faithfulness and in God's Word. And all of God's Word is, is good for us, and all of it is profitable. There's not a word in here that uh, should be neglected. And so by going through uh, a book of the Bible, though it may take us years to get through it, I think it is a faithful way to preach through the Bible. So Needless to say, I'm excited to be back in the book of Luke. If you have your Bibles, I want to go ahead and turn. We're going to be in Luke chapter 20. Luke chapter 20, verses 20 through 26. And I am just going to go ahead and dive in, and we're going to start with reading our text today. Luke chapter 20, verses 20 through 26. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him and something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. He said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able, in the presence of the people, to catch him in what he said. But marveling at his answer, they became silent. Let's pray. Lord, we are presented today with, I think, a passage of Scripture that many of us have heard. If we've grown up in the church, we may have heard this. Uh, some of us may have heard it out of context. Some of us maybe have heard it in context and are going to be refreshed today by, by your word. But Lord, I pray during this time um, that as I stand up here before the congregation, that you would be here with me. Lord, that as uh, we dive into the text of Scripture, that we would not do so uh, seeking our own ambition, seeking to find what we hope it says or, or twist it to mean what we want it to mean. But Lord, we might be challenged by scripture, that it might cut uh, even to the marrow of our bones, exposing our innermost being, exposing our sin, um, and doing the work of creating in us the likeness of Christ. We pray that that would be the case here today and that you would be faithful as we study your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So I'm going to go ahead and give you our main idea. Our main idea for today is that the followers of Christ have a moral responsibility to live in this world 
according to the authorities in place, but are to yield ultimate authority to God. Followers of Christ have a moral responsibility to live in this world according to the authorities in place, but are to yield ultimate authority to God. So, uh, my title for this week, you may be familiar with, if you are somewhat, or if you are a, a fan of The Office, uh, my title this week is Boom Roasted. Uh, if, like I said, if you're an Office fan, you maybe recognize this. Uh, but there's this, this scene in The Office, I think it's in season five, um, in a two-part episode. It's my favorite episode of The Office uh, called Stress Relief. Uh, so you can go watch it if you want. It's really funny. Uh, but in this episode, Michael Scott comes up with this great idea in order to help relieve stress in the office and to provide kind of an outlet. And his great idea is that they will have a roast. They will have a Michael Scott roast. And if you're not familiar with what a roast is, it's where a bunch of people, friends, uh, get together and they literally just make fun of this one person. They get up to the microphone and take turns just making jokes uh, at the expense of this one person. Um, and just, I mean, giving them all kinds of, of, of a hard time. Uh, I never want to be roasted. I think it would suck. Uh, but some people think it's fun to be roasted. I don't know. I think I could take a joke, but um, I think I would probably end up being a lot like Michael Scott in the episode, because if you're familiar, uh, as everyone is getting up there and just roasting him left and right, he ends up getting really uh, sad, and it hurts his feelings really bad as people are getting there being so mean to him, and he leaves. And the next day, he doesn't show up for work because uh, he's so upset about what they said. And they've all really hurt his feelings as they have been roasting him at his own request. Um, but then at the end of the episode, uh, it's one of the funniest scenes in the episode. Michael Scott comes back in and proceeds to, from the front of the office, roast each and every person in there individually. He just moves from one person to another. Uh, like he talks to Jim. If you know Jim's character, you'll, you'll understand. He says, Jim, you're six and a half feet tall and weigh 140 pounds. Gumby has a better body than you. And he goes, boom, roasted. And every single person in the office, Angela, Angela, where's Angela? Oh, I didn't see behind that grain of rice. Boom, roasted. I mean, he just, every single person, he hits them with this burn. And then at the end goes, boom, roasted on each and every one of them. It's just over and over again. He goes, boom, roasted after he roasts each and every one of them individually and just repeats over and over again until uh, you know the the scene kind of ends but as I was reading uh, Luke chapter 20 um, and if you read the whole whole chapter you'll understand why I say this but it, it almost seems to me like a similar kind of scene like as I'm reading Luke chapter 20 over and over again what's happening in this chapter is Jesus as he's been teaching in the temple and these Pharisees these Jewish leaders who can't stand him have come and tried to attack him and confront him and and are kind of getting in his grill. And over and over again, uh, multiple times through this passage, Jesus basically roasts them. He burns them. We see at the beginning of the, of the chapter, uh, when they come and challenge Jesus' authority, asking him about the, the baptism of John, and Jesus turns their question on them and uh, asks them the question, tell me, it's, uh, does John baptize with, uh, uh, from, is John's baptism from the Lord or, or from not? And and they go silent. And it's, it's Jesus like, well, if you're not going to answer my question, I'm not going to answer yours. Boom, roasted. He doesn't say boom, roasted, but like you could almost write it in. And then he tells them this parable of the wicked tenants and how these, these tenants that were put in charge of this vineyard um, just totally uh, just wreck the, the slaves and the servants that were sent to come and, and uh, sent to them from the master. The owner of the vineyard sent servants back 
and they would beat them up and send them back. And then ultimately, they killed the, the son, right? In this parable, they kill the, the master of the vineyard. They kill his son. And Jesus says, these men are going to get what they deserve. And he, he quotes from Psalm 118 when he, uh, he says that the stone that the builders rejected uh, has become the cornerstone. And he says, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. And these Jewish leaders recognized that Jesus was talking about them. It was another boom roasted. It's just kind of back-to-back-to-back roasts uh, that Jesus gives the Pharisees here. Over and over again, these scribes, these chief priests, are attacking Jesus and confronting him. And over and over and over again, he exposes their pride, he exposes their intentions, he exposes their sin, and makes them look foolish. But he also uses these situations not just to get a a burn-in on the Pharisees, but also to teach important lessons about the kingdom of God, which is also true of our story today, that it is more than just a good burn on the Pharisees, but it also is a valuable uh, lesson with regards to the kingdom of God for us today. So to set the stage for our story, let's consider just what happened in the previous section. So as I already said, uh, we know that Jesus told them this parable in which he straight up calls them out um, and tells a parable that is about them. And they had no doubt that he was talking about them when he told them this parable. And uh, he says in the parable, uh, he says, What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and will give the vineyard to others. Implying that the kingdom of God is going to be given over from these Jews to others. That the Jewish people who God had been pouring his favor out upon and the kingdom of God was going to come through, which it, which it did through Christ. He's saying, you as Jews, you are rejecting me and therefore you are going to be rejected. And the result of this, we see in, in verse 19, kind of sets the stage. And this is why the men are, are out to get Jesus in verse 19, which Matt preached on um, the last time we were in Luke, says the scribes and the chief priests sought to lay lands on him, lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. So point number one is the plot. We see here that these men, recognizing that Jesus was speaking about them in this parable, yet another burn, another roast, are furious. They're furious and they want to lay hands on him. They want to take him. They want to kill him. They want Jesus to be gone. But unfortunately for them, they know that Jesus has a great following. So the the people in this passage are not uh, called by this name in Luke, but the the parallel accounts in Matthew and Mark tell us who these people are, that they are the Pharisees, there's one group of these people, and the Herodians is the other group the Pharisees and the Herodians. And the Pharisees and the Herodians really are two very different groups. They're both made up of Jews, but by and large, these two groups were in opposition to each other in most regards. The Pharisees represented kind of the conservative Jewish sect. They were those who were very, very Jewish and were kind of Jewish nationals in a sense. Like they were patriotic Jews uh, and very serious about their Jewish identity and, and did not want to see that compromise. Whereas the Herodians, on the other hand, as indicated by their name, were those who had kind of 
accepted Herod as their ruler and were kind of uh, accepting and, and embracing kind of the Roman identity and, and not only the Roman identity, but engaging in Roman politics, they were kind of considered the, the liberal sect of the Jews uh, or a part of the liberal sect. So you had the Pharisees, which would be kind of like the very conservative Jewish party, and then the Herodians were kind of the liberal accepting of, of Roman uh, tradition and Roman politics, not only accepting of it, but greatly benefiting from it. Like they were doing everything they could to climb the ladder uh, to gain power, gain prestige. So by and large, these two groups were at odds with each other, that the Pharisees did not like the Herodians because they saw them as compromising on their Jewish tradition, their Jewish faith, and the Herodians didn't much care for the Pharisees, kind of for calling them out on doing that. Uh, they both, though, were seeking power, and what they both united around, both of these groups, united around their hatred for Jesus because both of them saw Jesus as a threat to their power, as a threat to their way of life. Both of these two groups were afraid of losing their power and their status. The Pharisees were extremely threatened by the fact that so many people were following Jesus. So many Jews were seeking after him and following him. And they saw that as a threat to their authority, a threat to their influence among the Jews. Because many of these people who were following Jesus now had been followers of these Pharisees. The Herodians, on the other hand, were afraid that Jesus was a threat to their position because he might be a threat to the Roman government. And if the Roman government saw Jesus as someone seeking to overthrow their authority, they would, in turn, reject the Herodians, and they would lose their standing as, as Jews. And in part, this view stemmed from a false understanding that the Jews had of the Messiah. Because what did the Jews think the Messiah was going to be when he came? They expected a political hero, right? One who was going to come in, who was going to overthrow the Roman government, who was going to take charge of of the nation and, and lead them with a, a great and iron fist and, and put out of place the, the authorities that were there. So the Herodians uh, thought that Jesus could possibly do this, and they didn't want that. They were afraid that Jesus was going to come in and shake things up and mess up their standing. And verse 19 that I've already read, which could really kind of go with either section of Scripture, it kind of goes with the passage before because it concludes that, but it also goes with our passage a little bit too because it sets the stage for what's happening. We see what's demonstrated is the hatred that these Jewish leaders had for Jesus and what they really wanted to do to him, which was to lay hands on him and to kill him. They wanted him gone. They wanted him out of the picture. But as the verse also says, they were afraid of what the people might do because there was a great crowd of people that were already following Jesus at this point. If they were to try and kill Jesus now, they would have an angry mob on their hands, and they knew it. So, these crafty, clever men came up with a more a subtle, more clever plan in order to uh, ruin Jesus, which is point number two, the trap. This clever plan that they came up with, what we see in verses 21 and 22. We see that it says, they asked him, teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give to Caesar or not? Instead of simply going to Jesus, capturing him, killing him, which would have ultimately caused their own demise, instead they devised a plan to lay a trap for him and force him to kind of bring, his, bring himself down. They thought they could trap him in his words with this question. These clever men came up with a question that they were certain Jesus could not answer 
without either ruining his reputation or getting himself arrested by Rome. It was a simple yes or no question, right? Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar? And they thought within this question, they had trapped Jesus. Because in this question is kind of uh, what the Jews believe about paying tribute to Caesar. There was this tax that, that Caesar, the, the emperor, the governor, or not the governor, the emperor, required of the people. A tax simply for existing, basically. And every quarter you would have to pay this tax, a tax of, of one denarius, in order to live under Roman rule. And the people, the Jews, saw this as a refutation or as uh, a, a, at odds with God's authority. In their eyes, to pay a tribute to Caesar was akin to taking what rightfully belongs to God, recognizing his authority, and recognizing the authority of a man over them. So in their eyes, that was wrong. It was wrong to do that, especially the traditional Jews. So therefore, they came up with this question, this trap. Because in their mind, there was no right answer. Either a yes it caused Jesus to have problems or a no did. If Jesus were to answer yes to their question of whether they should pay taxes to Caesar, what would result would be he would lose his following. His popularity would dwindle because people would say, well, he's not truly Jewish. He is not, he is not in favor of giving God authority, but rather he is recognizing an authority over us other than God, that being Caesar, and he would lose his following. And if he were to answer yes to the question, or, or excuse me, no to the question of whether or not to pay taxes to Caesar, whether or not to pay this tribute, then Rome would be after him because they would then see him as a threat to their power. They would see him as a revolutionary, as a zealot. And if there was one thing Rome did not tolerate, it was any threat to Roman peace. They would not tolerate it. And so the Herodians knew this, and they knew that Jesus would be arrested if he were to tell the people not to pay taxes to Caesar. So they present him with this yes or no question, and they think, man, I've got him. And they expect him to answer either yes or no. It kind of reminds me of, of a sort of courtroom situation that you might see on TV or maybe some sort of Senate hearing or something where there's this tricky and complicated and kind of landmine-filled question that's presented as a yes or no question, and then it's insisted that the person answer either yes or no. That's this complicated question that is designed to entrap somebody, and then when they start to answer with something other than a yes or a, or a no, it's like, no, 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 just yes or no. A simple yes or no will suffice. Nothing more, nothing more, right? That's kind of what these Jewish leaders want from Jesus. Just a yes or no answer, nothing more. But these men grossly overestimated their own understanding and grossly underestimated Jesus' wisdom and understanding. Because this is when Jesus' next roast of the Jewish leaders takes place. Now, point number three, Jesus' comeback. Luke tells us that Jesus knew that these men were trying to entrap him. He perceived their hearts. He knew what was going on. He was not deceived when these men came at him with all kinds of flattery, right? I mean, first of all, this should come as no surprise because the Gospels tell us that Jesus knows the hearts of men. Over and over again, we see in Scripture, people don't have to tell Jesus what they're thinking. He knows it. He knows their hearts. Besides that, I think it would have raised red flags for anyone when these people who hate you and are constantly trying to get you come and are all of a sudden giving you all kinds of flattery. Oh, teacher, we know that you speak rightly and show no partiality. 
Jesus saw right through that, right? So Jesus asked them for a denarius. Like I said, it's about one day's wage. This was the same amount that would have been paid to this poll tax, this tribute to Caesar that the Jews hated so much. And this request for a denarius is an interesting one for a couple of reasons. First is that the currency in question here, the denarius, would have had a picture of Caesar on it, along with an inscription that read, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus Augustus. And it would have probably had an image of uh, the Roman goddess of peace on the back. Any faithful, upstanding Jew would have recognized this coin to be explicitly blasphemous, both because of the goddess on the back, the false goddess, plus also the statement of, of Tiberius himself being the son of the divine Augustus, right? This very coin in and of itself, and rightly so, is understood to, to contain blasphemous statements on it. And yet Jesus has now asked for this coin for his illustration. Which leads to the second interesting aspect of this request. And that in asking for this denarius and receiving it, it would seem that at least some of the, the detractors in this the group of people questioning Jesus had a denarius, right? It would indicate that they were willing to submit to Caesar at least in using his currency, benefiting from it. They simply didn't want to have to pay money to such an authority. You see, the Pharisees wanted to live in this sort of uh, state of a double standard where they wanted the benefits that came from living under Roman society, Roman rule, and they would take those and embrace those. In fact, there was a, a relatively great amount of religious freedom that the, the Romans allowed just so long as you didn't threat the Roman government, Right? And even when Jesus first arrives at the temple, what does he do? He chases out the money changers, right? What were the money changers there to do? They were there to exchange currency between Roman and Jewish currency. There was a willingness to utilize this, this blasphemous system, this, these coins, so long as it benefited them. But as soon as they felt like it didn't, they were quick to claim, nope, can't support them. That'd be supporting an authority other than God. The hypocrisy of these men is immediately exposed. And in this time, much like today, it only makes sense that the government or the emperor or whomever is represented on the currency of a particular nation state has the right to, to dictate whether or not and how to tax it. By engaging with and using this currency, you're operating under and benefiting from the authority of the government already. For those of us here in this place who use American currency, you are already benefiting from and operating under the authority of the government. It would then be foolish of you while reaping the benefits of living under the government that God has put place over us. It would be foolish, it would be sinful to then try and reject that authority and refuse to pay taxes, right? It's a desire to engage in the benefits of it without paying the taxes that are due. It would be wrong. This was a brilliant response then that Jesus gives in which he left both of these two groups, both of these two accusers with no response. What does Jesus say after he looks at the denarius? He asks whose inscription is on it and they say reluctantly Caesar's. And he then said, render unto Caesar that the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. 
This was an amazing statement that Jesus makes in response to their question. Because for one thing, it kind of clears him, right? But it's more than just a cop-out. It's more than just avoiding the answer. It is an answer to the question, but it's also an answer to the bigger issue at work. Where Jesus says, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. They would have all understood that, well, sure, this coin belongs to Caesar because it bears his image. Therefore, it belongs to him. He has the right to, to tax it however he wants. So in giving this answer, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, Rome's like, yeah, we have no problem with that. He's, he's encouraging them, telling them pay taxes. So he has cleared himself of any wrongdoing with Rome or any reason for them to think of him as a, as a political zealot or, or revolutionary. But then by giving the second part of the answer, he also addresses the issue that the Pharisees really had when he says, give to God the things that are God's. Point number three is called the Augustinian reality. The implications of this passage, of this statement that Jesus makes here are vast. But something significant that really shines through in this passage, especially in the second half of Jesus' response to the Pharisee and the Herodians, is what could rightly be described as the dual citizenship of the Christian. The dual citizenship of the Christian. We must not miss the importance of Jesus' second half of his statement, his answer to these Jewish men. Jesus wasn't undermining the authority of Yahweh when he says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. He was not undermining the authority of God, of Yahweh. Rather, he was establishing it. And he was establishing it in a greater way than what the Pharisees even understood. One of the problems with these patriotic Jews, such as the Pharisees, was that they believed they could be loyal to God while also, they believed, excuse me, that they could not be loyal to God while also being loyal to some earthly leader or earthly authority or government. They saw it as a contradiction. In their mind, to submit to this poll tax, this tribute that Caesar requested, that was the issue at, of debate here, they saw this as a betrayal to God, who they pledged loyalty to. They were solely concerned, exclusively concerned, with the physical, material means of submission while neglecting the spiritual aspect of submission. The Pharisees understood that the authority of Yahweh was, was such that he was truly Lord over all. They did not deny that. In fact, because of that, they saw paying these taxes as a refutation of God's authority. Especially since they would be paying taxes to a pagan, blasphemous ruler like that of Rome. They saw it as an affront to God's authority. But the point that Jesus is making is that you can still submit yourself to God even in the midst of submitting yourself to a governing authority on earth, even a governing authority on earth that is wicked and that is pagan and that is unchristian like that of Rome. With Christ's answer to them, he's setting the record straight. Christ made it clear that there was no contradiction involved in submitting to earthly government and also submitting to the Lord as the supreme authority of our lives. This is where we get the concept of our dual citizenship that Augustine writes about in his book, The City of God. If you're unfamiliar with, with Augustine and The City of God, it's this really big book where Augustine essentially outlines the idea 
that we as Christians living here on earth today live under a dual citizenship. We are primarily, first and foremost, if we have been saved, members of, citizens of the city of God. Yet so long as we are here on this earth, according to the will of God, we also are called to live as temporary citizens of the city of men. Christians here on earth are true and permanent citizens of the city of God, which is our primary citizenship, but we are also still living here on earth and called to live as appropriate and submissive and peaceful citizens of this earth, which means submitting to the governing authorities that are in place over us. This is the point that Jesus made to the Jews in our passage today. And this concept is further expanded upon by Paul in Romans chapter 13 and in Peter and 1 Peter. But here's what I think is honestly maybe more of the problem today. Is I think people today would rather give some of their money to God, maybe via tithes offering, than what he is actually commanding that they give in this passage. This is essentially what the Pharisees were all about. They were all about giving offerings, giving money to God. They had no problem with that. They wanted to give God their money, make sacrifices. That was, in a sense, easier than what God actually requires. Because at the same time they wanted to and were willing to give money, give offerings, give sacrifices to God, they wanted to maintain control over their lives. And they wanted to continue gaining power in the world. But what was Jesus commanding them to give? Just consider with me what it was that Jesus used as his way of determining whether or not to give to Caesar on this illustration that he gives. He takes this denarius and he says, whose inscription, whose image is on this denarius? And the answer then is Caesar's. Well, Jesus responsive, if this coin bears the image of Caesar, it belongs to Caesar. So give to Caesar what is Caesar's. So then, by the reasoning that Jesus is using, what then belongs to God? What bears his image, right? What bears the image of God? We do. We are called by God to give of ourselves wholly, completely, utterly to the Lord. When you think about that, it would be easier to live as the Pharisees do in a sense. Where we could, I can give my money, I can even give maybe a little bit of my time and energy, but the, oh, there's a lot of myself I want to hold back. I don't want to give God everything. I should give God my whole being. Yet that's what Jesus is making clear. That's the point he's making to these Pharisees. Because they knew the Old Testament. They, they had Genesis. And these faithful Jews knew it well. They knew full well that they, as human beings, had been made in the image of God. And sometimes we're like the Pharisees, aren't we? We would rather give God, oh, here, I'll sacrifice a portion of my time on Sundays. I'll sacrifice a portion of my budget. I'll sacrifice a little bit here, a little bit there. But by and large, we're unwilling to sacrifice our whole self to God. Yet Romans 12.1 says that that's exactly what we're called to do. Romans chapter 12.1 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. 
This is a much harder request than whether or not to pay money to God, whether to give your money to the government or to God. He says, no, give your money to the authority, pay your taxes, but give me all of yourself. Give me everything. This is a much harder request. But in light of what Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross, it's the only right response. Christ died on the cross not to redeem our bank accounts, not to redeem our wallet or for the sake of our tithes and our offerings. He died on the cross to redeem all of us, our whole person, to save us from the reality of sin and death and destruction and God's wrath that was ultimately ours. There's only one appropriate response to this, and it is what Romans chapter 12 says, that we offer ourselves to God as a whole, all of our desires, all of our talents, all of our bodies. Yes, even our money ought to be offered to God as worship. And I know that there's all kinds of people on both uh, sides of this. There are some people in here who you are willing to give God your time, your energy, you're willing to come to church every Sunday when the doors are open, go to Bible studies. And yet some of you are holding back your money. You're worried that if you give too much or if you start giving of tithes and offerings that you're going to struggle and not going to have the money you need to make it. And then there's some of you in here who are more than happy to give your tithes and offering and efforts and just be left alone with regards to everything else. I'll give my tithes. I'll come. I'll pay. I'll even donate extra to Nepal. I'll give to proper hip hop. But if you want me to come to serve, to worship, all of these kinds of things, no thanks. I've already given them my tithes. What more do you expect? And yet our passage makes clear today that the expectation that Christ has is that what bears the image of God is rightfully his. Give to God what is God's, which is all of us. Our whole being, our whole self is God's. As my challenge today to you, to me as your pastor, to all of us, that we submit ourselves entirely to God. This does not mean we don't submit to earthly governments. In order to submit to God rightly, as we have his word now completed, we have Romans 13, we have 1 Peter commanding us to show honor to the emperor, those who govern over us, the authorities that God has put in place for our good, the Bible tells us, show them honor, Pay your taxes. Be a good citizen. Live peaceably so long as it depends on you. But recognizing that ultimately our citizenship to God is primary. The two are not in contradiction, much like the, the Pharisees thought. But rather the two should be done together. And there will be times. There will be times when it is really hard. For one thing, we really don't live in a Christian society, right? In fact, we live in a society that is increasingly godless, that is increasingly looking more and more like that of Rome, where the emperor himself claims to be divine, right? We live in a culture that worships self over everything else. Yet the understanding that Christ has and that Paul continues with is that even in an ungodly, in a pagan society, a pagan government, there is still overlap. There is still the law of God written on our hearts that doing good in some cases, in, according to the government, according to the authorities, 
overlaps with our Christian understanding of doing good. And that we should live recognizing that. That the authorities over us have been placed there by God for our good. And we are called to live according to both realities. We are citizens of this earth, yes. Paul, Jesus makes clear, live as citizens of this earth. But first and foremost and primarily, we are citizens of the kingdom of God. And let me just tell you, if you think that's easier, then you might not fully understand what Christ is asking of you. He's asking for everything. Give him everything. Let's pray.